it's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talkin' Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. All righty, friends, welcome back to our agriculture conversations on LaneCast Ag Podcast. And today we find ourselves in tropical Reno, Nevada. We're here at the uh, summer business meeting of the cattle industry and folks from all over the nation gathered here. A little smaller event than the uh, cattle industry convention held at the end of January and beginning of February every year. But 650 cattlemen and women participating here and uh, a, lot of, a lot of faces that are familiar to, to myself and my uh, co-host on radio and TV, Russell Nimitz. And one of those individuals uh, is a veterinarian and rancher by trade, and uh, this is his home state, in fact. And uh, joining us mis- uh, today is Mr. J.J. Uh, Goikachia. J.J., how, how is uh, the convention uh, treating you here in this oasis? So, so far, summer business meeting has been great. Lane, uh, really good turnout. Uh, we're getting some good things done, and I was a little bit worried with the way travel is for everybody, you know, what kind of turnout we'd have. Uh, had a few snafus from what I understand, but it's been great so far. Big crowd, everybody's very engaged, and I think people are just ready to get back to face-to-face meetings and get back to work. Now, as I mentioned, uh, you're here from the state of Nevada. Your family ranch is here, uh, I guess, because I know you've held different leadership capacity roles sure. within NCBA. Uh, what, what is your current role? My current role within CBA is Region 6 Vice President. So um, I've, everybody's in drought, but it seems like my region's in exceptional drought so uh, e- even Hawaii which is one of the states that I cover I had a conversation with Nicole uh, via email a couple of weeks ago and you know they're worried about drought and forage out there and obviously you guys know the status of California and fires and Nevada oh, yeah. Arizona Utah and New Mexico we're always dry but we're exceptionally dry right now well uh, up in Montana where, where I call home uh, before we started this conversation, we were talking about kind of we were on that that edge where we got a little pr- maybe a tenth at a time when everyone else to the east of us is getting about an inch at a at a time. Yeah. But uh, we'll take any moisture we can. I think uh, we had uh, about two tenths last night. My wife said so. We'll take that. It didn't help our hay crop because it all dried sure. out. <laughs> Well, if you're still measuring in tents, you're doing pretty good. Uh, I left uh, I left for Arizona last week, go down to Arizona uh, Cattle Growers Convention down there, and I checked the uh, rain gauge there on the computer, and we had five hundredths, mm-hmm. hundredths uh-huh. of an inch in about 70 days. So we're doing really well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about those hay prices there, but... Uh, you know, on these, I, I, I say, people ask, well, why did you name this the Lane Cast? And I said, well, I must have been drunk when I named it or something. <laughs> but uh, uh, when you name something online and go with a with a podcast name, you're kind of stuck with it because then you or you have to rebuild. But, you know, agriculture conversations, I like hi- highlighting different producers, uh, no, ma- no matter where they're from. And it, it's just so different compared to Montana or Wyoming, Idaho, or, or up into Washington, Oregon, when you come down into areas like Nevada and Utah, and, and you wonder why they have a little flatter hat and button that top button a little bit, right, JJ? <laughs> sure. Is there an explanation to all that? So so my hat's not always flatter, <laughs> and I don't button my top button. We'll leave that for the brother-in-law. But, uh, but no, it's, it's, it's kind of a culture, yep. obviously. And, and the buckaroo culture in Nevada is, is big, and, and a lot of people do embrace that. But um, 
we're all still cow guys at heart for the most part, no matter what your hat looks like, or if you want to wear a short sleeve shirt or, or button your long sleeve shirt to the top, that's, that's your choice. Oh, just giving you a little bit of, bit I, of grief I'll there. I'll take it. I'll take it. But, uh, you know, I, but, but, but as I said, it, it's a, it's a different climate. It, yeah. It's a different grazing atmosphere. I mean, what, what is it per, per animal unit when, when you're grazing on some of those? Sure. Like so, how many acres does it take to run a cow? You know, that's your funny, country? Lane. Everybody always asks that. So how many acres does it take? How many acres does it take? And, and we really don't compute uh, in acres. So I'll, I'll just tell you, we can run um, about 450 cow-calf pairs uh, in the summer on a combination of allotments, Forest Service, uh, BLM, and our private up mm-hmm. on the south end of the Ruby Mountains. Now, that's, some of the, that's some really good country up there. It's not what you see outside Las Vegas. It's not what you see right here outside Reno. A little higher elevation, good stuff. But that is about 400 square miles. Yeah. So figure 640 acres, if that's what you want to do, to the cow-calf pair, roughly a section uh-huh. to the pair. Huh. And then when we get down on our winter range, a little closer to Highway 50, you know, we, we did buy a ranch. Oh, geez, it's been a long time ago now, about 30 years ago, uh, that had winter allotment on it. So a lot of winter fat, which is white sage and some winter forage. And so we are trying to cut those hay costs down. That winter allotment is 800 square miles. It's 40 by 20, and there's not a fence in it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it makes for some interesting times. And, you know, we manage those with water. You turn these waters on, those waters off, push those cows to where that forage is, try to kind of rest, rotate a little bit within that great big valley. But, no, it, it's completely different to what guys in other part of the country think of. Now, what, how, how did your family get here? Obviously, your last name, Basque. Yes, sir. Uh, when, uh, obviously, the rich uh, Basque culture in this region, the United States, uh, how did your family make, make its way here to the United States in this region? So my great-grandfather actually came over uh, and what was from his Spain. Name? His name was Pete. So everybody called him Grandpa Pete. So I'll just back it. Real funny story, and maybe your listeners will appreciate this. My family's not very original. So my great-grandfather was Pete. My grandfather was Julian. My dad is Pete. I'm Julian. My firstborn was a daughter. My wife says, no way, we're not naming her Pete. So we named her Juliana. Yeah. So, but we went with that. But anyway, he came over. So Grandpa Pete, he came over from Spain, uh, him and several brothers, actually. And uh, when he landed in the United States, of course, couldn't speak a word of English. And so they stuck his name and a note to his coat and said, Elko, Nevada. And they stuck him on a train, and he ended up in Elko, Nevada, when he came off the East Coast. And is that just because they knew there was so he knew, people he, here? Well, he knew to go there, mm-hmm. and, and he could communicate that much from what I understand. So he ends up in Elko, Nevada with the several brothers. And then they knocked around there, not North Fork Country, Charleston, Beaver Creek, around there for a while. And then it was just, you know, they, they herded some sheep, and they did some other things. And I'll be honest, they ran moonshine uh, for a while. And so my grandpa and – and my two great uncles were little. They tended stills up in northern Elko County, right south of the Idaho border, and that was their deal. And and then old Grandpa Pete, he'd take a load to, to Elko on a wagon and try to, you know, do what he had to do to, to get by. And, of course, corn wasn't a problem because they were sheep guys. So you could get the corn, but it was getting the sugar. And uh, so when there was some sugar rationing going on, then they, they'd have to barter and do some different things to get that sugar to, to make that moonshine. Then he ended up – what, s- what years was this again? Was it Prohibition time, yes, obviously? Yes, so that yeah. was Prohibition time in there. So, uh, yeah, and, and they kind of called him Pretty Boy. He had a little pencil-thin mustache. And, <laughs> and uh, just just funny story that everybody loves to tell is he, he took off for town with a, 
load of hay and he had the moonshine hid in the load of hay and so he takes off with the team and he gets to a place called the dinner station uh, just over top of Adobe Summit from Elko and they stopped him there and there were some party line phones in those days mm-hmm. well everybody's listening in so they knew the sheriff and the posse were waiting for him on Adobe Summit so they tipped him off when he got to the dinner station ranch so they unloaded the whiskey and he went on in and they stopped him there on Adobe and uh he said, hey, Pete, stop. You know, we know, we know you got some moonshine and some whiskey. And he says, I don't. And, and he says, pitch it off. And old Grandpa Pete says, I'll pitch it off. But when there's no whiskey in there, you boys pitch this load back on. Uh-huh. He pitched a load of hay off, nothing in it, posse. And the <laughs> deputies, if you will, had to pitch all the hay back on. He went in, unloaded it, went back to the dinner station, bought a load of hay from him, loaded his whiskey, and went back into town. <laughs> so, But then he ended up down south. So where we're at now is in Newark Valley. My grandpa and uh, his two brothers and, and great-grandpa Pete, uh, they went down there to Warm Springs in the home ranch and then kind of knocked around there, hit some hard times in the 70s. They lost that ranch, but we have managed to stay in that valley. Yeah. And so we're right back there on the same trails in the same country that they were in, just a neighbor ranch. I just kind of picture on The Godfather Part Two when uh, when Vito Corleone comes yeah. over and uh, can't speak English. Right. And and uh, that wasn't, you know, they, they named him, you know, Corleone was where he was from. And, uh, yep. And, and, but, uh, obviously could you imagine though, making that, no, you know, the move and I, you know, we, we struggle so much in agriculture. We do, but like, I think about the Nordland side of my family that came over in the late 1800s, 1900s to from Sweden mm-hmm. to South Dakota where they settled. And then they about nine in the teens they moved to Dotson Montana and I'm just like I I, I can't imagine just moving, moving. To, to, to have a better life yeah. and I think that's you know we, we we struggle so much in egg we know that but we don't struggle compared to no. anything the hard work that they put in the working with with tools that you know are so archaic to us right. but they didn't know any better they had to work you know they didn't know what it'd be like to have an air-conditioned no, cab no but i mean I, what appreciation do you have for your ancestors of the difficulties that they made of moving from spain sure. to, to, to the nevada desert so they, they they hate everything with a team at the home ranch in warm springs and they actually you know had to trail them stairs to elko to put them on the rail and so you you know you hear about that stuff and you know a lot of people romanticize about that but that you know that was still going on in the early 1900s here in nevada and and that's all they knew like Mm -hmm. you said they turned those horses out and when it was came time they'd gather them um they'd had some good cowboys that would sit on the dam at the pond at Warm Springs and rope the runaways uh, for the first few days. And they'd come in with a mowing machine on their side and dragging things along. And yeah, you know, th- things were tough. But I, I don't think today as a society, as a nation, we understand just how tough it was for you to flee your homeland, your home country, come to the United States and hope of better, living in sheep camps, living in tents oftentimes. And then like I say, go south, finding that ranch. Um, uh, we all, I always joked, I don't, they must have just ran out of horses, and that's why they stopped there. Yeah. I don't know. But <laughs> it's it's good country for Nevada. It really is. But um, they, they had to eke it out. And, and in Grandpa Pete's uh, case, you know, he, he lost his wife, my great-grandmother, and childbirth with the fourth, with the fourth son. Mm. So you, you take a man who doesn't speak any English, comes from a foreign country, and raises three boys. And, you know, they're, 
that bass community in Nevada raised those boys and, and they stuck together. And I think you see that same thing across agriculture today. Uh, yeah, we might have air conditioned tractors and everything else, but when we have a neighbor in need, uh, everybody still comes together, even in these tough times. And there's everybody pulls together and helps each other out. If you lose a child or you lose a spouse or you have a bad injury or whatever. And I, and I think that's what makes the West and, and particularly Nevada so unique. I mean, we really do stick together. We might have our battles, but when a, when a neighbor or a friend is in trouble, we're the first one to come. And what does that Basque heritage mean to you? It, it, it means everything to me. Um, you know, on my mom's side, she's got some Italian in her. So, you know, I kind of got a hot temper from time to time because of that. But a lot of people don't understand this Basque heritage and, and it's, it's very, very important to me. Yeah. To, and, and uh, my daughter's, uh, dance they dance basque uh, we've, we've tried to instill that in them and what does that look like just may, maybe painting a picture of, of sure, what, so what that traditional dance is so and, and clothing that, there, there's a couple there, there's a couple of different ones but you know it, it's a scarf oftentimes like a red scarf on their head uh, a, a white blouse t-shirt whatever the case might be and and the, the old leather lace-up shoes and, mm-hmm. and they lace those up and, and, and they love to dance with that. And, and it's, if, if any of your listeners have the chance to look that up and look up bass dancing and that bass music, it, it's very lively. It's upbeat. And, and that's what they had to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were, they were a very suppressed population and, and Franco, uh, that dictator in Spain, he, he wanted to do nothing other than crush the Basque. And, and that was part of why they left. But, you know, that they, they stuck together. They held on to those traditions from the past. They brought them over here. And I think it's just like anything. The, f- the further generations we get away, the easier it is to get away from that. Mm-hmm. And But but for me, it, it's that hard work. And, you know, my daughter was pretty young, my oldest daughter. And uh, she looked at me one day and she says, Dad, we're Basque, aren't we? And I said, well, yeah, honey, we're Basque. Why? And she says, because we do everything the hard way. <laughs> and and that's just kind of a joke, and, and, and it yeah. is. You know, Baskos will do it the hard way. I mean, we'll take a pitchfork, break the fork off, use the handle to try to pitch hay. And it's just we didn't have anything else. And you'll solder it back on. You'll straighten nails. You do whatever it takes. Well, it's so interesting. So I was down in Argentina at the end of May, first part of June, and the host family, uh, the vice president of the uh, 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 Angus Association, mm-hmm. his name is Manuel Orlara Lynch, and his family fleed Spain during the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, we didn't get to really talk about that. It would be interesting to actually share his perspective being a monarchist sure. and getting pushed out. But you're, I mean, the Basque are not monarch. I mean, they, they were not wealthy. No. They were not. And so, but just to come to America and go for that American dream. And it's so great to see your family hold on to that heritage. Russell, you want to join us? Or you want to listen in? Hey, we got Russell Nimitz. He's going to maybe just pop in. we got an open microphone. Very interesting educational conversation. JJ. Good to see you, Russell. Likewise. Good to see you, my friend. Well, we got uh, Russell Nimitz here with us. See, I just messed everything up. Perfect. Oh, we got to have you know video on all this stuff. But no, I just I just find it interesting because as you mentioned, the further generations are removed from that culture or whatever. Like I, I know nothing about our Swedish side, sure. And but I know more about our Native American side on my dad's side, mm-hmm. which is also important to keep that heritage and and whatnot going. And uh, actually, you were turned down all the way there, so I don't even think they heard you, Russell. Perfect. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> over the years, that's some of my best broadcasts have been when the 
volume's been down. <laughs> but, Lane, you know, you bring up a good point. You're talking about your Native American heritage, how important that is to hold on to that and to keep that. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that is important, and, and that is one I guess a group that has done a really good job and you know tries to teach native language and that kind of thing. But I go back to like when my grandfather came, they taught them not to teach Basque. Yeah. And and in school, you know, they they would it was corporal punishment for those boys if they taught Basque. Yeah. And and my grandfather spoke fluent Basque. He struggled with Spanish, but he spoke fluent Basque, but he would not teach my dad Basque really? because of what he went through. And, and, and going to school. And, you know, he only made, he finally, I mean, he toughed her out and finally made the eighth grade and that was it. And he's, you know, no more of this. I, I just can't do it. And, you know, that it was, it was hard on him. And, and that's something that's tough. And that's a language that you're not going to learn that on your own. And I've yeah. tried and I've tried to pick up some words and my daughters and I kind of little here and there try to talk things and we're going to lose that. Yeah. And, you know, my dad, we, we can speak Spanish, my dad and I, but not, not Basque. And that, that just sucks to lose that. So on my mom's side, her, her dad, he was half Swiss and half German. And the family would have came over and I think the first, the oldest, so my great aunt was born, Clara, she was the oldest of 12 kids, was born in 1900. Mm-hmm. And then my grandma was born in 1904, I believe, great-grandma. And, and all these women lived into their late 90s, into their 100s. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to, you know, know these women for, for quite some time. But, you know, they were, I mean, immigrants from Germany. They went to uh, Minnesota. Half the kids were born there. They moved to Chester, Montana, yep. where my wife's family is actually from. And then during the 20s, they got droughted out. Half the older side of the family lived up in Chester, Montana, and then the other ones moved several hours away to central Montana, where our family ultimately put their roots down at. But my grandpa could understand German because all the aunties and every sure. everyone talked German with each other, but they would never he could never speak it. Yeah. And because they said, No, we are Americans. Yep. We do not speak German. And uh, you know, probably the the criticisms and the hate that they received, especially Absolutely. in the World War One mm-hmm. era and then World War Two, and my grandpa was just he he wasn't old enough to actually he would have been a teenager during World War Two, and I know that really weighed on him because mm-hmm. he was ju- right when the war ended, he was, was right when he turned you know was yeah. a- eligible to enlist in the military, I, and all that really weighed on him, but uh, I, I just can't imagine you know. I, I, we we can imagine it. I mean, there are Americans that can move. Yeah, you know, absolutely. so many Americans now that are immigrants right. that instill that we are. You know, the, the traditions that they give up to move to America. I, I don't think we value or appreciate that, especially in the new generation right. of immigrants to the nation. I think we get bogged down in politics too much about that. And yep. you know, we all come from immigrants, except yes, on do. my Native American side, but this nation is founded on immigrants, and we wouldn't be the nation we are without it. That's right. No. Well, I wonder what our forefathers and those immigrants that our families all originated from, I mean, I really wonder what they think of today's America and what they left for this dream that they they got to live, at least for a little bit of time here in the United States of America, and now we're kind of just... I wonder if we're muttering, muddying the waters you a little bit. If we're muddying the waters a little bit, no, it's it's. You know what I mean? I, I know exactly what you mean, and it's. I, I I'm worried, and I think we're all worried about you know where this country is, and and maybe which direction we're going. Um, you know, I don't want to 
turn on the news anymore at night. It's just, it, it's not what I want to see. And it's not what I want to put in my kids or anybody else wants to put into their kids those values. But no, I, I'm sure they're rolling over in their graves. There's no doubt about it, that this is not what was intended. And, and we're turning into probably the same thing. A lot of them fled. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all do a bunch of traveling. I mean, in our different capacities, mm-hmm. Lane and I as farm broadcasters, you as an industry leader for the cattle industry. And, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years of doing doing this farm broadcasting career is when we're traveling, whether it's an Uber driver in today's world or five, ten years ago when you actually had to hire a taxi cab, <laughs> you know, a lot of those taxi cab drivers are from other parts of the world. And and now when you visit with them, they just shake their head. They're like, yeah. what in the world? I mean, we saved all this money to get me over to this country. And they're trying to save all their dollars yeah. to bring one family member at a time over here. Because exactly what you said, JJ, because they left worn, torn, dictatorial type, yep. I mean, communist regimes to come to this country, the greatest country in the entire world, to get get away from exactly what, unfortunately, is yeah. uh, the younger generation thinks they want. <laughs> it's scary. It's very scary. Very, very scary. Well, again, we go through so many, go through the sagebrush a lot on these podcasts. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. But it all comes ba- back to what the values that we have now and the work ethic that we have. And I guess this comes back to the point of, staying in agriculture did you always want to be a cattle producer and veterinarian or did you say you know what um it's kind of tough i I better go to vet school and and get a degree in veterinary medicine to to diversify i guess uh, i guess to make it simple did you know always want to come back to production ag i always wanted to come back to production ag i didn't when i was a senior in high school i made my mind up this is what i'm going to do production agriculture and uh, I'll never forget the conversation went home and I told dad, you know what, uh, Jack, he was a good friend of mine, uh, him and I, we're going to go do UTI or something. We're going to go to a little tech school. We're going to do some, figure out this mechanic thing a little bit better so we can work on our own stuff and I'm coming home. And he says, the hell you are. And it was him, I think, that knew maybe what was coming or you got to have something else. And, and he said, you're, you're, you're too smart for that. You're too good for that. You're going to college. And I'd always thought about, you know, I maybe being that veterinarian. And I thought, you know what, then I'll show you. I'm going to go vet school. And I did. Uh, I came down here to the University of Nevada, Reno, not very far from where we are right now. I did three years as an undergrad, got accepted into the uh, program at Colorado State without a bachelor's, did my four years there. And then, uh, again, my dad and his wisdom, uh, he says, you know what, you probably want to make some of those first mistakes somewhere else. I was ready to come home. I was done right yeah. there. Let's go yeah. home. And nope. So then I went up well, close to your country. I went up to the sand, northern sand hills of Nebraska and South Dakota. I practiced up there for about a year and a half. Went up there with the intent to uh, be a partner in a practice in Rushville. They had another clinic in Gordon. The way things fell out, the vet left the clinic in Gordon the week before I got there. So they took this snot-nosed, brand-new, out-of-vet school kid. <laughs> they said, there's your clinic. That's your office manager. That gal doubles as your technician have at her and so i did they ended up selling that clinic the next year they wanted me to buy in and by then i said you know what if i'm going to do this i'm gonna do it at home yeah and so i i moved west i didn't stop 30 miles west i just kept right on going and came back 
uh, to Eureka and started my own practice. But what I'm doing today is what I always wanted to do. Um, I've kind of pulled back out of that that vet practice a little bit. You know, I did a stint as the state veterinarian in Nevada for a while. Um, that was a lot of time on the road. And uh, even when I was home in Nevada, I wasn't home. I had those two little girls. Mm-hmm. That wasn't where I wanted to be. So I went back home and started doing that cow thing again. I'm still doing some private practice, but I can pick and choose. And I'm, I don't have everything I want. I have everything I need yeah. in that family. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing right now. So, uh, you know, you mentioned, how long were you state veterinarian for the state of Nevada? Uh, about three and a half years. Three and a half years. But you got to carry a badge and a gun, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, well, your own gun, but I got <laughs> to carry a badge, yeah. I was not I was not a sworn officer in the state of Nevada, but as the uh, quarantine officer for the state, if you will, you, there was a badge. There was a badge. Okay, so you didn't get to legally carry a gun. I don't want to put you in a legal precedent here, but you... I had a concealed carry the entire time, and I always had one. Yeah, right. You, know, you didn't want a, uh, what's that Ian Tyson song, uh, Dallas? Uh, Death Claude Dallas. Claude Dallas. Yeah. You don't want any of that going on? No, I didn't want any of that going on. But, you know, we, <laughs> we were at a time there in Nevada. We had a really good director, and we were aggressive, and we were engaged in our producers. But we decided that uh, some of the stuff that was going on in the state, we weren't going to let slip. So we were involved in everything from cockfights to illegal lion and tiger entries from the famed tiger king <laughs> really uh, really so yeah he, he he had some he had a partner down in las vegas and in the perump area so we were involved in in some of that those shenanigans in there and uh, why weren't you in the documentary <laughs> did you get interviewed no oh okay so uh <laughs> it got quiet there for a second like oh so we 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 had some we had some dirt, so to speak, on on uh, Mr. Joe, yeah. and uh, we were working with the USDA uh, at the time uh, down in Las Vegas, and we were going to go ahead and do what we had to do, and I got a phone call uh, from a higher up at USDA in the region, and he says, you're standing down, and I'm, okay, um, you know, we were young and stupid, and this is Nevada, this is my, this is my state, I can do what I want, can I ask why? And he says, ATF and FBI just got off a call with them. They want us to stand down. So we stood down. And it was not long after that when he got hooked. So everybody was kind of working together, other than the rogue guy that thought he knew what he was doing out here. But, yeah, I mean, it was party buses, stripper buses um, down in Las Vegas. They had lions and tigers on there, and you could pay to – They'd drive the bus around on the strip and then pay a little extra and go up to the suite with the with the ladies and the lions and the tigers and all right. there were illegal entries everything from monkeys to tigers to lions to it's truly lions or tigers and bears on my lions tigers and bears exactly. on my and and you know not not the not the best people makes makes the wizard of oz movie look tame <laughs> this is a real guys las vegas <laughs> not everything that happens in vegas stays in vegas some of it happened in oklahoma too <laughs> well, so, exactly. yeah yeah well hey I, we do need to just take a, a moment to thank today's sponsor we'll be back with uh, jj goikachia and uh, russell nimitz uh, right after these words The National Cattlemen's Beef Association is the definitive voice of cattle producers in our nation's capital. NCBA is working on behalf of its members to protect your operation from government overreach and rising taxes. But the cattle business is under pressure, and we need every producer to join us to protect our way of life. Join NCBA today and help us protect the future of your farmer ranch. Visit ncba.org or call 866-233-3872 for more information. 
All right, as uh, we come back today, uh, on the goal, uh, the Yellow Brick Road, you know, from that <laughs> yeah. last statement there. But, uh, you, you know, J.J. Uh, uh, J.J. Goikachia joins us along with uh, Russell Nimitz, and we're here in Reno, Nevada at the Cattle Industry Summer Business Meeting. Um, you know, we were talking, J.J., about obviously your path as a veterinarian, becoming state veterinarian as well, and just getting back into the, the ranching game full time. Um before we even recorded this show, the perfect title for this episode came came to me, and it's "What's in a name?" JJ Guichia, yeah. and just because people see your last name and they're like, "Well, how do you pronounce that?" I remember asking Russell one time how to, <laughs> and I probably still pronounce it wrong. Who, no, who knows? you're really close. Is you're it, really good. Yeah, really close. You almost really said close, no, really no. close. But what 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 does your last name mean for you? For you, your wife Sally, and your daughters, and that heritage. We were talking about that Basque heritage. What does your name mean to you and the influence it has in agriculture and that lifestyle? So, you know, that, that name is unique, as you said, and there's a lot of people don't recognize it, but in the state of Nevada, um, this name's pretty important. Um, you know, my dad's been a politician for, for quite a while, and, and he's not a politician in the sense that a lot of people are going to think about politicians today that's a dirty word mm -hmm. you know he started in 1986 as a county commissioner then went on to nevada assembly and in nevada senate and i'll guarantee you go out here and you find anybody from a neighboring state or from the state of nevada and ask about pete Gugachi, and that guy's a, a legend for agriculture and he's always stood up for rural nevada the west and agriculture and 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 i, and I think again that's just part of that heritage you know of, of where we come from and the hard work and wanting to pr preserve that for the next generation and uh, you know it, it's funny it in translation it's upper house or the upper level of the house and you know my, my mom used to joke oh yeah you know you go get you as you guys think you're the, the the upper house the upper house but i actually think that translation fits pretty good you know we we strive to be just that much better mm -hmm. all the time yeah. and and you know my grandfather did my great-grandfather did my dad did i do and, and i hope those two little girls do and uh, it's it, it's pretty cool. And, and I have to disclose, there's probably people listening that know the Gogachia Law Firm. There's those law firms around Idaho and Utah. We are not related to the Gogachia lawyers. <laughs> and see, I always see, and I'm glad you because I always put the I ahead of the O, I guess. So Gogachia, 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 and okay. and actually. I'm looking at, yeah. You're it, it would be G-O-I-C-O-E-T-X-E-A is how it is spelled oh, sure. in the native uh -huh. language. Uh -huh. Achea, E-T-X-E-A, is house yeah. in Basque. And so over here, we had to chop things up and Americanize things, so made yep. a C-H instead of T-X. That happens, you know. But you've done a great job of pronouncing J.J.'s last name. I think the first time I ever interviewed J.J. was back at a – you know, cattle industry legislative spring conference in Washington, D.C. So we're back there. You know, we're doing radio and TV interviews. These guys are getting ready to work Capitol Hill. And and we're right across the street from the U.S. Capitol. And uh, the Cattleman and Cattleman crew is like, okay, your next guest is going to be this Nevada cattle guy. He's also the state veterinarian. And, uh, oh, by the way, good luck with his last name. And <laughs> I think that was like one of the first times I met J.J. And... Uh, Anyways, we powered through the interview, and right then and there, I knew that this, this guy, he was the real deal, you know, not just for his family and carrying on his family's uh, legacy and tradition, but also, uh, you know, for the U.S. beef cattle industry, I mean, I, I mean, what a spokesperson and, and true industry leader, not just here in Nevada, but for the rest of us across America. And so, 
Well, you have an incredible story, JJ. So it's it's fun to be part of this conversation and learn more about your about you, your family, and and your your rich heritage. Well, I appreciate those kind words, but you know that it's groups like the National Cattlemen's Beef Association that, that took the time, and the Vada Cattlemen's, and and those that took the time to invest in me, and you know make that phone call. Hey, we're looking for some more young guys to come up to be you know a little more in the leadership role at Nevada Cattlemen's and that just kind of morphed into all of a sudden we're going to send you on YCC mm-hmm, and yep. you're going to come in as a as a president of NCA Nevada Cattlemen's here in a couple of years and I go to YCC and I make some great connections and and you know I was fortunate enough to go back a, a second time as that chair and I make some more connections and it's just that that program and, and this organization and the, and the state affiliates are what makes this possible and, and makes those good spokespersons and those good people that keep this industry moving ahead. Isn't and, that YCC tour something else? I and, mean, and it's young, for our listeners that aren't familiar, it's Young Cattlemen's Conference is yes. what YCC means. But, yeah, sorry to cut you off there, Russ. No, I was just – I mean, I went on it, kind of dates me a bit, but uh, 2001 – Okay. I went uh, on that thing, you know, and it's it's pretty much been the same since then and as it was before when I went. Both of you guys have been on it. But, I mean, holy cow, I mean, I'm from a ranching background, and, and it was eye-opening for me just to see the different segments. I mean, truly from the gate to the plate to the legislative side of, of any industry, but more specifically the beef cattle industry. When we started there in Denver at NCBA's headquarters and then worked our way east, you know, making stops at feedlots and ethanol plants in, in Kansas and then up to, you know, South Dakota, Iowa to check out. Uh, so you did the bus tour. We did the bus tour, but. And then the little plane tour. My my, during my term, we did fly from Garden City, Kansas, on two little mm-hmm. puddle jump planes up into. Um, uh, I can't remember. It was either it was either Sioux City. I think it was Sioux City is where they were going. There. Yeah, yeah. in that time, um, Tyson Foods was still IBP. Yeah, and so I got to meet the most famous guy in the processing industry or the most hated guy in (laughs) in cow calf country bob peterson at the time from ibp i mean but for a guy like me it was like holy cow this is the guy who like you know i mean ibp basically revolutionized how the processing industry and, and what it exists now and then jumped over to mcdonald's headquarters there in chicago got to check out the the mercantile exchange i mean they were still actually trading cattle with paper and live pits i was the year i went was right after they ended i think yeah they had ended live trade either right before or the year after that i went so we didn't even go because there was no live trade you didn't get to go to cme no because there was no live trade going on so that would have been 2015 when they ended it was what was that june or july 1st 2015 is when they ended live trade something like that and then i went in, in the summer of 2016 so that was the first year that YCC did not get to see that because there was no live trade taking mm. place at the Mercantile. What about McDonald's's headquarters? I mean, I know it's since yeah. moved since I was there, but, but I like, got to go to the old campus too. Oh, you did get yeah. to go to the old. Ca- yep. I just remember like, you know, listening to the CEO at the time. Walk, you know, I mean, how much, how many pounds of beef they use, yep. and, and this statistic, and that's, and then they took us to like the kitchen. Like the the research and R and D part of McDonald's, and then they fed us like McDonald's food there, and 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 no offense to McDonald's and there are many restaurants across America, but I mean, the Big Mac actually looked like it did in the picture that they served. It us. was the real one. It was yeah. the real. And I was like, I'm in heaven. 
I love this place. I don't even want to leave. And then, of course, you know, taking the big bird over to, to D.C. And, yep. and then getting to see the, the impact and the, the influence that NCBA has had and will continue to have on Capitol Hill with those lawmakers and lobbyists and whatever administration is in power at the time, you know, different officials there. I mean, it's pretty incredible. So, you know, when I, when I went, um, and you talk about the most loved or most hated man, uh, same thing held true for Nevada. And, uh, you know, we had Senator Reid. And like him or not, right. the man was a hell of a politician. And him and I, he, he would always take a meeting with me. And that was one thing on YCC when I told those guys, I'm going to meet with Senator Reid, majority leader. And, nah, right, no way. Absolutely not a problem. Get right in. We sat down. We talked about things. We disagreed on the same things we've disagreed on his entire political career and my entire political career, but yet we still had that conversation about why. But it, again, NCBA is respected enough. You get up there on that hill, that door opens, you walk in there and you can have that conversation. And that, that, that is pretty powerful. So, you know, you have two daughters. Mm -hmm. And what I always love about seeing you and your girls come in is you bring your, 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 yep. your whole family to these usually. And, uh, and uh, obviously they, they could make this right. trip, but what, what do you hope the exposure of going to these events, being around cattlemen and women from across the nation, and, and I know they're, they're girls, they want to swim to the pool, they want to yeah. go have fun, but yeah. what do you hope they actually get by the time they're teenagers or going off to college by being exposed to a world of agriculture outside of the ranch here in Nevada? Well, you know, we just kind of talked about it, how you drift away from your heritage generation to generation. And this is one of those things. This is my heritage, ranching. And, and, and I want them to understand that it's nationwide and the importance of it. And, and to see that, you know, what we have at home and, and the food we have on the table and the things that, that we are able to do aren't by accident. And, and that there are thousands of producers across this country that go through the same battles and the same struggles every day as we do. And that there's more power in numbers. And they're getting it. They're getting to that age where, you know, they want to come. They actually want to sit in on some of these meetings, and they're starting to listen. And they're and starting to pick up. how old are they up. now? Uh, they're 11, 10 and 11. Yeah. So, and they'll be, you know, I mean, before I know it, I'm going to have two teenagers. and But they, they talk about this. Mm -hmm. and, and, yeah, they like to go because they're kids. Yeah. They're little kids. And it is funny that the closest meeting we have had since I've had them is this one. And they <laughs> didn't get to come. But, again, it's part of it. I got one in volleyball camp. I got another one doing gymnastics and you know they're they're doing their own thing but i know their hearts in this and i, and I want them to know you know what are the issues i didn't have that yeah. and so you know i i mean i i kind of knew what it was but even when i got started my vet practice I, I wasn't really active in the state affiliate i wasn't active in ncba and and i want them to, to maybe know at a little earlier age and be a little bit more involved and to understand that importance of what we do well, what, uh, well, obviously, you, you never know what your kids are going to do or what they want to yeah. do. Um, are they going to have an opportunity to come home and ranch if they want to do that? That opportunity will be, well, I hope. that That's the plan, Yeah, Lane. Now, you know, let, let's see what, where this thing goes uh, with hay and everything else yeah. right now. But, uh, yeah, that, that that's the plan. Yeah. And, and, and I know that that's my my dad and my mom's plan as well. Uh, you know, there's, there's that planning for those girls and for that future. Uh, I'm never going to force them. If they want to come home, then come on. It's going to be there for them. If they want to be a doctor or a lawyer or 
if they want to be anything other than a large animal veterinarian, I will let them do it. I do not. <laughs> I would not recommend that wear and tear on on somebody right now, and 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 then try to pay off those that, that today's. I couldn't imagine sending a, a kid to vet school today with those tuitions. But anything they want to do, and and it'll be there. The oldest she loves, she'll get horseback. She loves working cows with me. Um, I, I heard Russell's both of his daughters said that they want to go to vet school. <laughs> Beautiful. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I don't know. They might want to go to – one of them might want to go to vet school. I'm not sure I can convince them to be a large animal vet. Um, don't. That's not that, – trust me, that's not where the nickels because, are. Because, uh, you know, in the Nimitz household, we've got two little dogs and, and two cats and, and – and, you know, just by listening and eavesdropping on mom and dad's conversations about small animal vet bills, they've already picked up like, hmm, I think it's actually – more or you can make more money working on a Boston Terrier than you can a 1500 pound black yeah. Angus heifer, you know. And uh, but it does bring up a serious point about being a large animal vet. I mean, we still actually do, all joking aside, need a few people out there to to sign up and 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 help us out here in rural America because this veterinary shortage is real, guys, and it's not just rural America, it's right here in Reno. So I'm still really good friends with people over at Department of Ag, lab supervisor, those people that work in there. And I'm always giving them a lot of advice because they cannot get in to a veterinarian in the Reno Sparks area. Mm -hmm. And they're they're booking out weeks in Elko, Elko, Nevada. Some of those clinics aren't taking appointments until the end of August for dog shots. So we have a veterinary shortage. And, you know, we talked about a lot of things in here today. You know, we, we're talking about FMD. We're talking about traceability. We're talking about all these threats. If you don't have the boots on the ground veterinarian, and you're exactly right, Russell, well, if we don't get some guys on the ground that are out there doing that day-to-day -day work, have that relationship with those producers and are watching for when that sign first shows up of some disease, we're in big trouble, and, and I'm scared. Yeah. And obviously, you were talking about earlier before Russell came in, we were talking about how many acres it takes to run a cow yeah. in this country. But uh, I heard that was one of the key discussions. Russell was able to attend that Region 5 meeting mm -hmm. uh, this morning. and uh, But you're, you're in Region, region 6. six. Uh -huh. But one of the big topics in Region 5 was uh, uh, land acquisition mm -hmm. and in the sale of yep. private land to public or to nonprofits and then turn it over to uh, federal agencies. In this state, you can't ranch without public land and you can't grow crops on most of the no, land no. here in this no. state. What, I guess, what are some of your key concerns about uh, the role that you play in the multi-use of public mm -hmm. lands and issues that you're seeing on the state and national front and, and being able to, to actually pr to put money tax-wise into your local communities through grazing and sure. the challenges that you may see on the road ahead of people that don't understand that once that land is not utilized, there's no tax flow. There's no improvements. That's right. So, you know, Eureka County, we actually have um, in our master plan and in our county code something that says no net loss of AUMs. And that means exactly what it is. So that's an animal unit monthly. And that's a term that, you know, the federal grazing, uh, the federal agencies apply to what it takes for one cow-calf pair, one adult and a calf at their side or a bull or whatever it might be that doesn't have the calf to graze. So we don't want any net loss because we understand the importance. Those dollars that we spend on those AUMs, we're fueling up in town. We're buying our parts in town, our groceries, and then those private property bases, that's our tax rate for there and and you're exactly right we're seeing that 
a lot in Nevada right now. Some of these communities want to expand their landlocked because we're 87% owned or managed by the federal government in the state of Nevada. So if a town or a city wants to expand, then they have to go to the federal government and say, hey, we, you know, we, we're requesting some of this land around our borders. Okay, we'll transfer you 1,000 acres. In exchange, we're going to take 100,000 acres and designate a wilderness over here. And that's set aside. And that's, that doesn't meet the multiple use standard in a lot of times mm-hmm. anymore. Or we're going to do uh, a, a national monument over here. Or we're going to do areas of crit- critical environmental concern over here. So there's all this horse trading going on. But it, it is real. And it's not just happening here. Obviously, as you said, in Region 5, they're very concerned about it. We're seeing these NGOs. Uh, we're seeing some even state wildlife organizations starting to buy up these properties for whether it's wildlife migration corridors or whatever you want it. We have it right here in Nevada. Department of Wildlife actively working on closing on a huge ranch in East Central Nevada right now mm-hmm. on the private property of it. And they I have to be fair. Nevada Department of Wildlife by statute has to pay property taxes in the state of Nevada. That's in the statute. Really? That is the only state agency that has to. But they got that in the statute. So those property taxes stay. But it's that the families that were on those ranches. Where'd they go? They're not there anymore. They're not in school. They're, they're not buying their groceries in, in town. It's just an absentee owner. A lot of times that turns into weeds and everything else. So it, it is a major problem in the West, this acquisition that's getting away from private hands. And again, we, in the United States, we're proud of living in a nation where we're free to make decisions. We're free to make money yep. in our capitalist society. And, you know, it, it's easy to pass judgment when you see a ranch put up for sale. Right. You know, maybe these, the, you don't know the financial, right. it, it, you know, we're all an egg. You know, we all go down to the coffee shop and gossip a little bit, you know. But we don't know the financial situation or the health of the family or, or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. But, you know, you think about when your grandpa came over yep. and your family that came over from Spain that was putting hay up with teams and, yeah. and just doing all they could to, to live on land that mm-hmm. no one wanted to settle right and now we have that oh we've got to live in the west we have we have to have our ranch at 20 30 acres what uh I, I i guess i don't even know what i'm trying to get out here with it jj but what what do you think that our forefathers would think of when we sell land at two to three thousand dollars an acre range land and do, do you think people actually feel shame should they feel shame should there be judgment from the forefathers are they rolling around in their graves what is your view yeah. of that so i'm sure this came up this morning too i mean i'm never going to tell you what you can do with your private property or what you can do with with what you own and we don't understand those circumstances i get that what what i don't like is i guess let's call it inflation or the artificial elevation of the prices mm-hmm. on some of these ranches what we're seeing guys is cows will never pencil to buy these ranches anymore mm-hmm. and so when you want to sell hey i don't blame anybody for wanting to sell a place for 12 million dollars that they bought for two million dollars i mean that's that's the american way right but those cows are never going to be able to go back on that so i i want to be careful to not pass judgment but am i am do i maybe feel that we need to do a little bit better job of trying to keep that in agriculture. Yeah, absolutely, because that is continuing to dwindle and dwindle. And it's not just here. Look what this farm ground in the Midwest is bringing per acre. I mean, it is insane. Yeah. You know, eighteen, twenty thousand dollars an acre for some ground. I think there was one either in Illinois or Indiana uh, a month ago or some thirty thousand. Yeah, I saw that. It came through on some news deal one more. I, 
what what are you doing with what are you doing on thirty thousand dollar an acre ground? I know, right? And and you know, USDA at AgriPulse, they had their West Coast Summit, and they had a presenter from USDA studying the trends mm-hmm. of just farm. And I and I, I'm basing that it has to be farmland because they didn't say rangeland in particular, but they're expecting. And I could be totally wrong on this, but two hundred million acres out of farming in by the year twenty forty. But they said that could increase depending on if the trends continue to double or triple every sure. year. And that's what blows my mind. Bozeman, Montana, that is the epicenter, mm-hmm. Boise and Bozeman. Yep. A lot of people move in there. And it just it troubles me when people move to Montana for the views and they live in a condo. Hmm. Looking at their neighbor's people. backyard. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that is the best farmland in the state of Montana. The yeah. topsoil is outstanding. And... Everyone in that community probably likes to go shop. Well, we're getting, they're getting to Whole Foods now. You know, they have the co-op. They, they, they want to know where their food comes from, yet they're barring people, you know. And again, I'm not judging people for making a profit on that, but when you're taking the most productive food, and food is food security, national yes, security, it and it's going away, and it's never going to go back. No, and, you know, we're talking about we're, we're battling fake meat, lab-grown meat, people, I don't want GMO this, I don't want GMO that. We're pushing us right to it. Mm-hmm. If, if if you're not growing it, then where do you think it's going to come from? And, and we and, and we don't want to import anything because we don't know what we're going to get from somewhere else, or we can't get our wheat from Ukraine because of what's going on over there. Where do they think this is going to come from? Right. And that's what the most troubling part is. You're exactly right. We will be food insecure. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, everybody's against uh, biotechnology, mm-hmm. even though uh, the majority of those against are eating. GM produced food, whether it's, you know, seedless watermelons at mm-hmm. Costco or the miracle grow they're using on their tomato. I mean, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like the, the unfortunate part about society today, young and old, is too many of them are getting their news and information and, and taking it as fact off of social media. And it's crazy. I mean, we take, Lane and I take great pride. I mean, we're bona fide like news people. I mean, we have a, a real radio and television network. Yeah. It's actually on real radio stations and on real television stations. It's not just living on social media. Right. And, and we take great pride in making sure our stories are correct. The people we interview like you are, are newsworthy and, and incredible. And, but yet, you know, some uncredible source out there can rename uh, a news agency so to speak make it as close as possible to you know a bona fide news agency yeah. maybe just one or two letters off or something and then people just share that like wildfire yep and that scares and, me to death and they, they don't fact check it at all i get the, you guys get it too somebody shares it with you they'll send you a message yeah. oh share. yeah so, you, you can't be serious. And, and we see that now. I mean, so a good example was the the unfortunate situation with that uh, temperature increase that yep, caused Kansas. the yeah. death of so many cattle. Sure. And the conspiracy theory was going around that, you know, this is, yeah. it could be packer driven, it could be environmentalist killing. And, and I was getting messages all the time. I'm sure you got a bunch. And it's just like to me i'm like well we don't have humidity in montana we don't have you know what what i guess what what are you pulling up jj so i was going to pull up a message from someone and i it's not pulling up for whatever reason here right now somebody i have a lot of respect for they work for me is at the department of ag and when that was going on lane i get a text message late at night i was just going to bed it was probably 10 o'clock 
I have to ask you because I trust you. Do you honestly believe this is just a heat dome and an environmental issue that's going on in Kansas? She knows better, but she had read so much mm -hmm. of that. And so I called her. And I walked through it. Come on, you know better. But that's exactly it. And that stuff was spreading. Yeah. And, they, and, and they had actually, that little community she lives in had glommed on to the fact that maybe it's the Biden administration and more food insecurity and artificially trying to drive up prices of beef. I mean, they just feed off. Well, they just couldn't believe that Mother Nature and a that's freak right. thing in Mother Nature could do something like that to, 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 to livestock. And I, I did my best, too, and I was, you know, trying to find credible sources just so even though I knew it wasn't some sort of weird conspiracy deal. I mean, I'd go to the grocery store by my house and everybody and their dog would come up and ask me, you know, I mean, what's going on? I mean, they just had it in their mind. We saw it on social media, yeah. you know, and and I'm just like, no, it's just a freak thing in nature that happened. It's unfortunate. And then I would just if nothing else, just tell those people, I was like, guys, I mean, the cattle market is actually up right now. Do you honestly think that cattle owner wanted to lose 10,000 head? He couldn't recoup the losses that he's going to actually make on the profit of selling those as live animals here in another month or two. Well, and that's um, one of my previous podcasts put out this month with my buddy Trey Wasserberger out of Nebraska. He, he was connected to that operation mm -hmm. too. And and shame on the the person working there that took that video and posted it. Right. And that was a conversation we had. And Trey was talking about with with people that that work for he and his wife at, at, at TD Angus at Rischel Ranch. Like you don't take videos of, no. of of anything. And because look, so first off, that that got producers fired up, mm -hmm. and, and rumors starting to fly. But also, it gave animal rights groups ammunition, yeah. saying these guys are bad. Yeah, no, they can't take care of those animals. Look how they suffered. Yeah, and that, that, there was nothing good was going to come out of that no. video. Well, I had people just saying, I mean, and people that, you know, are dear friends of mine, like saying, well, the cattle owner just didn't have enough water. I mean, he must have ran out of water. And I said, no, I was like, anybody that's been to a feedlot or that has a cattle operation yep. and, and that sort of, you know, situation, I mean, they've got plenty of water, and usually they're – They've got sprinklers set up mm -hmm. that they're 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 putting water on those cattle too, in addition to what they're drinking. I said, it's just again, it's just a freak thing in nature. But in today's world, we just want to make everything uh, a conspiracy because it just can't be that. Right. It can't be sound science. It can't be fact. It's it's got to be some sort of conspiracy, and and it's really it's sad. Yeah. It really is. And we could keep talking about yeah. this all day long, but I, I do want to kind of wrap this up, JJ, because I know I, I, I got to do a Sorry. podcast after this too, and, and I know you you probably have some meetings downstairs. Uh, <laughs> but kind of circling back to just the pride of being in agriculture and, and your family, how how can young people that maybe don't have support from their family to, mm. to start their own operation or take over an operation uh, on their own. They're a young couple, both of them work in town. How, how do we in America keep the family farm or ranch going to that next generation or a new generation coming back into it without the support of someone signing, you know, signing a note for them? Is it possible? How do we do it? You know, that, that, that's the hard part, uh, Lane. It's, it's more and more expensive uh, to stay in this game. And obviously to crack into the game is almost impossible. 
at this point, I guess, you know, my advice is we all know there's families out there and, you know, I may be one, as we talked about earlier, maybe my girls decide they don't want to do this, but if there is someone there that does, um, you know, you bring them on, whether it's an employee or, or whatever, and, and you start moving down that line. And, you know, for me, uh, my retirement plan is I just want to make sure that there's enough income that Sally and I are, you know, hopefully by that point, the other house that we may be living in is paid off and keep the food on the table and just let me sit there and watch those cows in the day and help you a little bit where I can. If it means drive a tractor, drive a truck, whatever. But I think there are those options and opportunities out there. And, and maybe that's what we need to be looking at uh, rather than that. I'm going to take $12 million and I'm going to go to the bank right now and I'm going to move, you know, away and do something else. If we truly do care about agriculture, we need to be a little bit more creative and, and maybe try to bring those in because there are those individuals out there. And, and maybe they're a ranch kid that comes from a ranching family that has three brothers mm-hmm. and, you know, they're not going to have that opportunity to go back. And, and so, you know, we, we need to do a better job of seeking them out and, hey, do you want an opportunity here? And, you know, if that means you work for me for a while, then maybe it kind of turns into a partnership as you get your feet on the ground. That's where we need to go. Is there a fair transition in agriculture? I don't, know I don't think no. there is. There's not. I, I, I don't think there is either. And even, you know, a lot, a lot of family things as you try to make that transition, there's hard feelings and it, it's just what it is. But no, there's not. And, and I think it's because there's a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. uh, in it. You know, I, I, I was fairly confident when we entered into a transition uh, with my mom and dad and you know, we're going to buy these cows and we'll take them over 10 and we'll take a lease on the place on the South with that. And then COVID hit. Well, who in the hell would have saw COVID hitting and who would have known what them cow prices were going to do literally three months after we signed the paperwork, but that that's what you do. And, and so you just, you just move on. And if you're passionate enough about it, you'll find a way to get it done. Yep. Russell, anything else you want to add or, or throw in before we no, wrap up I, today's I, conversation? I appreciate you letting me join in and, and uh, it's always good to have these type of conversations with friends like JJ. Yep. Well, I, I appreciate both your time here today and uh, taking, uh, uh, I, I know you had a like stack full of, uh, you're really strict with Robert's rules of order. And Absolutely. I know you were like same point of question and everything in that meeting. So they kicked you out, you know, but uh, <laughs> JJ, I appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we get to see the girls. Uh, yeah. Where are we at this winter? New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans. And they are already counting on being there so if I, I i might get kicked out if i don't take them and they're gonna hopefully that transition of them taking over the ranch is like in two years right that's yeah, when you want to retire that's where we're know. going yeah. <laughs> when, they, when they become teenagers <laughs> <Yeah>. yes <laughs> baptism by fire there you go get after can do a worse job than daddy <laughs> <laughs> well friends thank you so much for joining us here on this agriculture conversation with jj goikachia and russell nimitz uh, i'm lane nordland here on the lancast ag podcast we'll catch you next time Thank you for tuning in to the LaneCast with Talkin' Ag, Lane Nordland. For more on Lane, check out his Facebook page, Lane Nordland Ag Broadcaster and NordlandCommunications.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.